All right, so much as I love and respect Fumi, I'm going to begin my sermon today by disagreeing with something that he said last Sunday. <laughs> Fumi and I are brothers and co-laborers, and we agree on pretty much all the important matters of faith and truth, but I just can't stay quiet when he throws shade on space travel. <laughs> I love space travel, and I would argue that over the past hundred years, most of the greatest and most worthwhile projects undertaken by humanity have been our space projects. The Apollo program that sent Neil Armstrong to the moon, the International Space Station with true multinational cooperation, and now Elon Musk's determination to get people to Mars. Uh, space projects bring out the best talent to solve the toughest problems and build something truly memorable. And so just in case you're not following the developments at SpaceX as closely as I am, <laughs> let me bring you up to speed. So um, five years ago, five years ago, September 2016, Elon Musk, he gave a big announcement at the International Astronautical Congress that he planned to build a city of a million people on Mars using this huge starship. And he had a computer model that looked like this. I hope you can see that's a bit small. Uh, five years ago, it was just it, nothing, not a single part of this machine existed. It was just a computer model. Three years later, in July 2019, his company SpaceX had designed the methane powered engines that would be needed and were testing them on a tin can they called the Starhopper. And that looked like this. Three years, that's as far as we've got. And now, two years after that, it was just last month, the full Starship was stacked together for the first time at the SpaceX launch pad in Boca Chica, Texas. They're preparing for its first orbital test flight, which could happen as soon as it gets approval from the FAA. And it looks like this when it was all stacked together. Uh, so this Starship, and it's kind of hard to tell from the picture, that I think is the second tallest crane in the world. Um, and this Starship is uh, already taller and more powerful than the Saturn V rocket, uh, which is the one that took men to the moon. For 50 years now, the Saturn V has been the most elaborate and most powerful machine ever built by human hands. So in terms of technological progress, what Elon Musk and his company have achieved in the past five years rivals the Apollo program itself. And the Apollo program came with a presidential mandate and a wad of federal cash and 400,000 government workers to help make it happen. So I really want you guys to be impressed with this. <laughs> um, and I want to give you a window into how this kind of progress has happened. I want to play you a 40 second video clip from an interview that Elon Musk gave recently to a YouTuber called the Everyday Astronaut. And they were touring the Boca Chica launch pad. And here's just a short clip from that interview. But it's, also, it's also pretty amazing that on a project at this scale, you're still measuring things in days. You're still like a oh. day, you know? I mean, that's, that's impressive. What other people it, are like, really, minutes and hours. seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's nonstop. It's not like you're doing that because there's a launch in two days. You're doing that the whole time this place has been developed. It's been like down to the, you're counting every minute and second. I told the crane operators, yeah. what would you do if there's an asteroid heading to this planet in eight days? Yeah, exactly. That, that's what they that's what they were told today. <laughs> yeah. And I who mean, knows, maybe there is. Yeah, I mean, you never know. I think if, if we operate with extreme urgency, then we have a chance uh, of making life multiplanetary. Uh, still just a chance, not for sure. If we don't act with extreme urgency, that chance is probably zero. 
All right, so the key line I wanted you to hear is that last line. If we don't act with extreme urgency, that chance is probably zero. So the company is making astonishing progress because its leader has a clear vision of what he wants to do, and he's operating with extreme urgency. And I wonder if our work for Jesus doesn't lack fruit because we have little sense of urgency. Or maybe what it is is that we get stressed and anxious about the wrong things. So I want to look at Nehemiah chapter 3 today and see that it was not so with Nehemiah. When we look at Nehemiah's project, he had both the clear vision and the sense of extreme urgency that we find in business leaders like Elon Musk. And so the progress of Nehemiah's wall was similarly remarkable. And before we get into chapter 3, I want to start us off by opening up to chapter 6 of Nehemiah. So turn to page 402 of the Church Bibles. Find Nehemiah chapter 6. And we're going to look at verse 15. So it's there in the left column, just under the heading, The Wall is Finished. Nehemiah 6, verse 16, it says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when our enemies heard it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of God. Have you ever done anything and had the people around you say, he must have had the help of God to do that? What it means is that the nations around looked on this project and said, this is nothing short of a miracle that they got this wall rebuilt in 52 days. And so we, as we look at it, can know for certain that God was truly behind this project because of the enthusiastic way that his people jumped in to help, because of their phenomenal success despite the opposition, and because of the verdict of the enemy nations that God must have helped them. So that's the big picture of what, what's happening. Uh, and now we're going to look back at the details that we find in chapter 3. So turn back a couple of pages to chapter 3, which is our text for today. I got handed this whole chapter to preach from. <laughs> and in some ways, it's a really strange chapter, right? It's a strange chapter because it's very repetitive. It has a whole lot of names that we don't recognize and places we don't know. And it really doesn't seem to say all that much that seems relevant to our own lives right now. Uh, so it's one of those chapters in the Bible where it's easy to tune out and miss the interesting details. Uh, we believe that the Bible is God's word and that all of it is God's word. And so even the parts that don't seem that striking or interesting initially uh, still have a lot of fruit uh, from God for us. And we're going to put that belief to the test today as we study Nehemiah chapter 3. Um, so uh, have your Bibles open in one hand and have that map that I gave you in the other hand. Um, because that's really going to help us understand this passage. Um, this is a kind of nerdy map that I drew from various details I found online. Um, so let's give our attention to this part of the Word of God. And I want to notice three patterns that emerge from the report in Nehemiah chapter 3. First, that there was a united leadership. Second was the complete participation. And third, the personal engagement that we see in this work. work. So first we see the united leadership. And I hope that while Mike was reading that passage, that you had the map in your hand and you could recognize that the report is very organized and it's very complete. 
So Nehemiah 3 starts up in the north with the sheep gate, the northernmost point of the city, the closest gate to the temple. And his report proceeds counterclockwise around the wall until it arrives back where it started. And on the way, it mentions every gate and every tower. The fish gate and the northeast wall was given to the sons of Hassanah in verse 3. The old gate and broad wall on the west was given to Joyada and his crew in verse 6. That was a huge section that went down as far as the Tower of Ovens. The valley gate and southwest wall went to Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoa in verse 13. The dung gate was repaired by Malkaija in verse 14. The fountain gate and the king's garden in the south of the city were given to Shalom in verse 15. The southeastern walls and towers were assigned to another guy called Nehemiah and his crew in verse 16. The wall of Ophel to the east was given to the Tekoites in verse 27. And the horse gate back to the tower of the hundred went to the priests and goldsmiths starting in verse 28. So the chapter makes a complete circuit of the wall around Jerusalem. Every part is accounted for. And that's very important because a city wall is only any use if it makes a complete circuit. If you don't close the circle, you may as well not have bothered with a wall at all. So what we see in this chapter is that families and clans were working together, each on their own little section. They were assigned to work on different sections, probably by Nehemiah himself, and they all worked simultaneously. But they were working in different places so they wouldn't get in each other's way. What we see is the whole thing's very efficient. It's well-led and well-organized. But we also see that this project doesn't just hinge on one good leader. There's also a united leadership of the people because of the example of the high priest Eliashib. So at the end of chapter 2, we remember Nehemiah assembled the people and he gave them his business proposal. We need to rebuild these walls. And then notice here, right at the start of chapter 3, the first thing it says is, then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. So the high priest himself was the first to stand up, the first to get to work. Think about their culture. The high priest was the highest ranking dignitary. The text says he rose up. He's the big chief. And this plan wasn't his idea. But he rose up and he stood beside Nehemiah, this nobody who was coming from out of town, because Eliashib recognized that the hand of God was upon Nehemiah. And not only did the high priest stand up for the plan, but then he also stooped down and picked up stones to rebuild the wall with his own hands. How lovely is this? This is admirable servant leadership. And it surely set the standard for everyone else. From the top of the totem pole right down to the bottom, if the high priest is building, then so will I. So Eliashib's lovely, humble response was surely critical to the success that followed. And I have to tell you, friends, that as we think about leadership, we all want leaders like Eliashib, leaders like this in every area of our lives. We want leaders who are willing to serve, who are ready to pitch in and get their own hands dirty when the situation calls for it, who aren't too snooty to take on the lowly and invisible work. And I've got to tell you that after a decade of watching Christian leaders develop, I've come to recognize that a willingness to serve is an absolutely crucial quality in any leader. If you can't be a good follower, you will never be a good leader. So as we pastors choose who from this congregation is going to be raised up to leadership, we always have our eyes on the people who most willingly and gladly submit to our leadership. 
Those are the ones who are going to lead in the way of Jesus. So that's the first observation about united leadership. Now, second, we see the complete participation. I don't know if you found it a little bit tedious as we read the whole thing aloud, um, but this chapter is just full of names, isn't it? I counted 44 specific names of individuals, clans, or townspeople, and that's not including the names of all their ancestors. And those 44 names also, uh, represent groups of people. It's not just that one guy. It's him and his whole family or clan or crew. So there are an astonishing number of actors in this scene. This project galvanized the whole people of God and pretty much all of them took part. It was all hands on deck. So specifically, the actors included priests like Eliashib in verse one and Levites like Merimuth in verse four. It includes rulers like Rephaiah in verse 9 and Shalom in verse 12. It includes men and women uh, because verse 12 records that Shalom, who was ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired with his daughters. The president's daughters were down in the rubble hauling rocks. The list includes goldsmiths and merchants in verse 32, as well as temple servants in verse 26. And it includes residents of Jerusalem, people whose houses were right next to the walls in verse 23, but also a bunch of people who were coming in to work from neighboring towns. So we hear about Jericho in verse 2, Tekoa in verse 5, Gibeon and Mizpah in verse 7, and Zenoah in verse 13. So among this extensive list of people, we find both men and women, both small and great, both rich and poor, both young and old, and both locals and out-of-towners. And that leaves us with this sense of the whole community pulling together to get the work done in record time. All these people were dropping whatever else they were doing to pitch in. And they seemed to all be operating with this sense of extreme urgency. They saw that a window of opportunity had opened for them. They didn't know how long it was going to last. Nehemiah had just arrived from the king. The hand of God was upon him. But the people of Israel still had many enemies. And kings could be fickle. Who knew how long this window of opportunity would last before the king changed his mind and summoned Nehemiah back home or before raiders came upon them while Jerusalem was still defenseless? So the time to act was now. And the mode was extreme urgency. And as it turned out, Israel's enemies did mobilize, as we're going to see next week in chapter 4. But it was too little and too late. The enemies lacked conviction. They moved too slowly and they lost out. We have to wonder, would Nehemiah have been successful if he had not given this project the full court press? Surely his extreme urgency was appropriate and justified in the circumstances. He, built, he rebuilt 1.5 miles of wall in just 52 days. Even Elon Musk might have been impressed. Now, I said a moment ago that there was complete participation, but that's not quite true, is it? There's one isolated break in the pattern, which we find in verse 5. Look at that. Look at that with me. Uh, verse 5, it says, next to them the Tekoites repaired, and that means the people from Tekoa, a town just southeast of Bethlehem. But then Nehemiah adds, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Now, notice that these nobles have no names in this chapter. 
This chapter bothers to list by name 44 individual people, along with their fathers and their grandfathers, but it leaves out the names of these nobles. So we will never know who they were. History has lost them now forever. 3,000 years later, and here we are talking about Eliashib and Zachar and Merimuth. Who is talking about the unnamed nobles of Tekoa? No one. They would not stoop to serve their Lord. Presumably they had other things to do, better things to do, governing sorts of things, noble sorts of things, much more important than just picking up a few stones. Well, whatever wonderfully important thing that absorbed these nobles' attention is gone now, isn't it? Buried under three, million, three millennia of sand. Not even a footnote in anyone's history anywhere. It's a complete and total nothing. While Eliashib and Zachar and Merimuth and the others have their names in the Bible. In the best-selling book in the world every day of every year. To be mispronounced by English speakers throughout all generations. <laughs> Don't you want to just take these nobles of Tekoa and just punch them in the face? This was the stupidest, laziest, most arrogant decision made by anyone in history. To have written on your tombstone for all eternity, he would not stoop to serve his Lord. Can you imagine it? Is there anything you would not do with your life to avoid having that be the summary of your life? Do anything, friends, to avoid that being said of you. He would not stoop to serve his Lord. He traded the opportunity to be written in the book of heaven for the sake of some self-important project that not even the dust remembers. These men were idiots. And don't you feel sure that you could have done that too? Do you feel sure that you could have gotten distracted by something that seemed important and taken your eye off the ball and missed the eternal calling of God? Like I missed the moment when my neighbor was ready to hear the gospel because my front flower bed so desperately needed weeding. Or I missed the chance to give a life-changing encouragement to my teenager because I was just so excited about the game. I became the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan who hurried by with better things to do instead of listening to the call of God. We need to take such care that we're not idiots like these Tekoa nobles. Let's recommit ourselves to paying attention to what God is saying, to what the Spirit is doing. So we don't waste our lives in worthless disobedience when we are being commanded by God to make them count for all eternity. What God is really doing in our midst might surprise us. It might look like something that's beneath us. For Nehemiah's people, it was really not anything too glorious or nothing too hard. It was just pick up a few stones and build a wall for the sake of a 52-day project. These guys got their names in the Bible forever. And we will not know the internal significance of our choices until later on. We need to trust God. We need to follow his lead, even if we don't understand it, even if it seems beneath us. 
Now, finally, let's turn to why this war was a big deal. And the question of, can God really be served by just carrying around a few stones? And the answer is, yes, in this case he can. And it's because of what these stones mean. And because of these people's personal engagement in God's story. So look at those maps again. And uh, think about this. Where is this wall? What does it enclose? And the answer is that it encloses the temple and the historic palace of King David and the tombs of Israel's kings and priests. As Nehemiah called it in chapter 2, this is the place of my father's graves. So the stones of the wall, they were just stones, but they encircled Jerusalem, the spiritual home of Israel. And it says in verse 1 that Eliashib, he not only built the walls, notice in verse 1, he also consecrated them. Eliashib was acting as a priest, and he was showing that the worship of Israel was still alive and well, and with the wall repaired, it would grow strong again. Notice, too, how many of the people in this chapter built with a personal engagement. So a lot of them built their own personal strip of wall, the part that was closest to their own houses. We see that note a few times, like in verse 23, Benjamin and Azariah repaired beside their own homes. But Eliashib didn't, did he? His house was down in the south of the city, probably near the water gate, as we find out in verse 20. But Eliashib got to work up in the north of the city at the Sheep Gate, the main route into the temple. He was paving the way for the people of God to flow in for the feasts. The part of the wall that mattered most to him was the gates into the temple. And it seems that the out-of-towners, by and large, repaired their own gates too. Jerusalem is the place that everyone from out of town would come three times a year for the great feasts. They would flow in through these gates, and that was enormously meaningful to these people. So Gibeon and Mizpah, they were up in the northwest of Jerusalem. And in verse 7, the travelers from these places repaired the old gate, or the gate of Yeshana, very probably the one that their ancestors had used to enter the city before the exile. Zenoah was due west of Jerusalem, and in verse 13, the Zenoans repaired the valley gate, which was probably the one their ancestors had used. And Tekoa was east of Jerusalem, with a view toward Castle Tower and the Wall of Ophel, which is what they repaired. And all this suggests personal engagement. This is our people, our history, our city, our story. As the people served, it meant something to them personally. So let's just take one Guy, imagine Merrimuth, like his name. Imagine Merrimuth, as he dripped sweat onto his knee-high patch of wall. He could look up, and he could see the very spot on earth where his first father, Abraham, had offered Isaac as a sacrifice to God way back in Genesis 20. He could look up and see the very spot where Solomon's temple had once stood, gleaming with gold, where the glory of the Lord had descended and the Ark of the Covenant had been housed. He could look down the hill and see the ruins of David's palace and the house of the mighty men who had fought for him, mentioned in verse 16. David, who was the man after God's own heart, who organized Israel's worship and wrote much of their songbook, and who received the covenant from God that a son from his own body would reign on his throne forever. 
And so Merrimuth, dripping sweat, could look up again and see the crumbled east gate through which that sun would one day come, riding on a donkey accompanied by shouts of Hosanna. He could look up and see the very place near the temple grounds where those shouts would turn to crucify him and the sun would be condemned. And just a little bit further off outside the city wall, Merrimuth could gaze upon the very hill where that sun would drip blood upon the ground in payment for the sins of the world. Merrimuth, with his sweat-stained stones, was safeguarding that past and paving that future. A son was coming who would stoop and serve his Lord. And not just serve his Lord, but serve us, his lowly people. And Merrimuth could not have really known that. He could never have known at the time how important his job was, nor could any of the rest of them. They were just building a wall because God told them to and had sent a man to lead them in the work. But by their obedience, they were taking their place as part of God's great salvation story. And their names would be held in remembrance forever. Among the 44 names listed in this chapter, hardly one of them appears anywhere else in the Bible. It's just here. It's just for this one project, but it's enough for an eternal remembrance. Their names are written here in the scriptures, and they're written much more gloriously in heaven. And similarly for us, we don't know when we say yes to God what that's going to mean for the history of the world. What part we're going to end up playing in the big story. It might be a very small part. It might be a surprisingly large one. We won't know until later. But we can be confident that our names too will be remembered. And we can say, I was there and I made that happen. As the old poem says, we have one life to live. It will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. So what's your own calling from God this morning? If you are a baptized Christian, then you are called to holiness. And if you are a disciple of Jesus, then you are called to make disciples of all nations. If you are a husband or a wife, you are called to love and honor your spouse. If you are a parent, you are called to raise your children in the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And you might have other individual callings besides professional or vocational callings to serve God in some specific work. So let me, let me ask you then, as I close, are you living out those callings with a sense of urgency, even extreme urgency? Are you getting up every day to make that day count in your calling? knowing that you only have a finite number of days left to finish the work, and you do not know the setbacks that you're going to face ahead on the road. Laziness or half-heartedness or procrastination will neither honor your God nor win you any medals. But for those who will serve readily, eagerly, speedily, and diligently, Jesus promises an eternal name, and an eternal crown. Amen.